0: This is writer and game designer, Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode
1: include... Pitching your setting to players. The Martian ground squirrel mystery. Shadows over film land. And subbing for Stalin. We average nine new titles a day. That's over sixty a week, and we've got well over fifteen thousand RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. Okay, it's time once again, as it often is, to ask Kenan Robin. So let's ask Kenan Robin. Leo Paul Raffinson asks Kenan Robin. How would you describe an established setting to players who don't know anything about it without boring them to tears and still giving them a good feel for the setting so they're comfortable creating characters and intersecting, which I suspect means interacting, with the setting? If, if they, you create them nine miles above the earth and they will intersect with the setting no matter what you do, pretty much. But, uh yes. Yeah, so how do we uh describe a setting in an exciting but uh brief fashion? Robin?
0: My... Initial answer is my initial answer to many things, which is to focus on the core activity of the game and to build out from there. So the question always is first of all, what are the characters going to do in this setting? Now, it may simply be a total sandbox world in which they do whatever it is they decide to go and do, or you may have a very specific thing that they do. Uh, for example, you are Uh, raiders on a borderland as a more sophisticated civilization comes in to attack you, or you are space marine grunts attacking futuristic orcs, or, you know, whatever the core activity of of the game is. So start with what it is that the characters are going to do, and then ask yourself, what do they need to know in order to do that? What's the minimal build-out from there? And the second step, then is to uh, go not only from what they're doing to how they're doing it. And that gets you to character generation. So that if you've got a setting that requires this sort of lengthy exegesis where you want to make it a non-lengthy exegesis and draw people in quickly, you then go to, you know, what are the different specialist types who would be doing this sort of thing? Start drawing out your players. Uh, So this is something that I would advise doing if you're playing a face-to-face game, actually during the game session. You know, you sell people the elevator pitch of, you know, you are space marines hunting space orcs, and then that gets everybody basically on board. Now, they may develop some preconceptions there that you may want to address once you uh, then get everybody together and then ask them, you know, what kind of guy do you want to play? And then move from there to, well, the kind of guy who would do this in that setting is... The avatar of Heimdall who has a laser arm or whatever it is. And so that you describe the world to the players as it would be very specifically seen from their character's point of view. So that you are containing what it is that they need to know. And from the questions that they ask you, you know, can I be a guy with two laser arms? And they say, oh, well, no, due to the treaty of 1207, you know, uh, avatars of Hamdahl are only allowed to have one laser arm and so forth, then you sort of have a back and forth dialogue so that you're giving the players specifically what they want to know about the world. So you're not going back to the obligatory beginning of the rule set that goes, well, a hundred thousand years ago, there was a war between the elves and the snakes and such and such. So that you're just zeroing in on exactly what it is that the players need to know in order to create their characters, and have then have their characters start to do the thing that they do in your game.
1: So, um, I, I, obviously, I think that that approach can work for a game where you've already got a core activity going on. I mean, in the, in the far-flung world of the future, where there is only um, uh, undeclared police action, you are playing <laughs> space marines fighting space... and that's what you're doing. You're not playing the Inquisitors, you're not playing the guys who are um, experimenting with Quantum Singularity, you're not doing any of the other things that's going on. You're out there at the forefront, the hard end, you're in your power armor, chopping up pig faces. But what if it's a world like the Forgotten Realms, or a world that you know and love well, say Glorantha, and you're saying, all right, I'm doing this writing for Glorantha, or I really love Glorantha, we're all going to play in Glorantha, and your players are people who have maybe heard of Glorantha but they have no immediate door into it. What's your what's your way to sort of let them figure out what where in the world they feel like engaging and where in the world they feel like interacting? Do you do you begin and say, you're lunar empire slave liberators and that's what you're gonna be? Or do you say how do you get them to a point where they can even pick amongst all the wonder that Glorantha has to offer?
0: Um I would either Uh, If you have a group that is liable to take your lead and go along with whatever it is that you suggest, either pick a default core activity, or I would narrow down the choices to okay, well, you could play lunar slavers, or you can play uh, mystics searching for the golden egg, or you can play sorcerers engaged in intrigue in a a school of sorcery. And so, uh, you know, you might give them a multiple choice. And according to uh, current brain theory, we can. Not choose between more than seven things at any given time. So I would (laughs) narrow it down to no more than seven and probably only three. Uh, You might want to make that simpler. If you know your group, you know uh, that they might like the sorceress intrigue premise more than they like the guys on the borderland premise. But you're Still trying, I think, as quickly as possible to get to a core activity that everybody's going to like. And you're right that some worlds have a whole bunch of different core activities, although I would argue that the, for the Forgotten Realms, that's a background against which, in general, uh, one finds underground complexes full of monsters who have stuff and you kill them and take the stuff. But for something like uh, Glorantha, where there's, a, as you say, a ton of different campaign concepts, I would want to get them to the campaign concept as quickly as possible, because then that gives you the answer to the question, what is the information that people really need to know? And then you can, if there's a bit of information about the world that you think is really interesting, you can then weave that into the narrative so that they're discovering that during play as characters in fiction uncover information when it matters to them. Because if you think of a a story, your favorite fantasy novel or whatever, uh, even Tolkien, in which the characters are arguably sometimes supplied with uh, not quite relevant exposition because he wants to weave this world, there's still a limit to that, right? It doesn't, it does start out uh, with a guy showing up in Hobbitland to assign a mission to a Hobbit. And so you still get information from the Hobbit point of view. And there's another example of, of what Tolkien does really well is that he picks guys sort of in the corner of the world who are homebodies and aren't really interested until this crisis comes up in this vast, rich world that he's developed so that they, although they're part of the world, once they start to go out and explore, things are new to them and they need to find stuff out and have stuff explained to them. And so if you have a the richer and more complicated your world, I would think the more that you want to sort of... Put your hand on the scale of what the core activity is in order to make it something in which relative outsiders of whatever stripe, whether they're, you know, rustics from the backwater or people who've just been awakened from suspended animation or whatever justification you want to come up for that, are coming into new situations in which they encounter the information in the course of play. Because if I'm just sitting down at the first game session and the... GM starts to just sort of free associate facts about this world he knows really well. I tune up pretty quickly. But if I need to know the ancient history of the elves in order to navigate elven politics because one of them wants to marry me and the other wants to stab me, I care about that information. I have an emotional connection to it, and therefore I am liable not only to remember it, but to actively seek out more of it. And if I am an active player, actively Asking questions and finding information that's much richer for me than being a passive receptacle of a lot of exposition.
1: Yeah, I, I think that um, this this question is yet another answer to my uh, my answer of always start with Earth if you can. Because for a game like uh, Vampire, which has a similarly tangled up backstory and a lot of uh, devious political machinations that can, can be explained at tiresome length, The question that you ask when you're starting to play vampire is, what city do you want to be vampires in? And everyone has an impression of Chicago or Istanbul or Calcutta or, you know, Sydney, Australia or whatever it is. And they can pick their setting, they can pick their point of engagement with the setting with a degree of knowledge that immediately narrows down, first of all, the amount of uh, backstory that uh, the storyteller has to unload. And then second of all, it provides them with instant buy-in and instant interest in the setting because in theory they didn't just you know spin a globe and drop their finger down they picked moscow or london or beijing because they were interested in that city or they had some emotional connection to that city already and i think that's harder with something like the forgotten realms which as you say is pretty much the same core story but it's the core story happening across a wide variety of different backdrops and the nature of the backdrop is going to uh very strongly influence the sort of game you're playing. I mean if you're playing Urban Rogues in that one awesome city that shaped the Skullport or whatever it is, that's one thing, but if you, I'm sure that there's some other uh urban city that's under the control of some, you know, primordial orc cult or something, given that it's the Forgotten Realms and you don't really have any way of knowing where you are at any point. I mean, no one wants to start by playing the hobbit who's been off in the corner of the setting. You want if you're playing in a in a in a big fantasy world, you want to play the Legolas or the character who's uh, who's been or the Gandalf, ideally, who's been you know sort of part of what his his badassness is is his knowledge of the setting and how to work it.
0: Although I would say that the whole history of D and D is a counter argument to that because there are a lot of people who want to start out as the young guy off in the corner of the world who starts by fighting rats and centipedes and works his way up. To being legless right <laughs> for for for
1: generations that's the only way you could do it
0: right, but his uh, well that's still by far the, the in its all of its various variations and, and brands the most popular game experience and I think that partly that comes historically from Tolkien and uh, to a lesser extent from uh, uh, Conan uh, in that they have a sort of a big progression for their characters that is not normally found in fiction. But also those progressions have a functional kick to them that really works in the role-playing environment because the process of becoming more powerful is also the process of gaining more information about the world Mm -hmm. and gaining more temporal power over the world. I would also argue that for those of us unlucky enough not to be Ken Height, that all earth settings except for the present day are equally full of daunting exposition. Mm -hmm. And so uh, even if you are playing uh, in the 1920s, you need a lot of information about the world. Uh, Now that may be just a matter now of, you know, having Wikipedia open. And, you know, then when the question comes up, would we be able to get here by plane in 1934 or or have x-rays been invented yet? You can sort of the 20s and 30s are sort of now with the aid of a laptop and a Wi-Fi connection are the present day with some details stripped off. But as soon as you know, if you get to the Renaissance, for example, uh, that's a big, daunting setting that's just as alien for people as uh, Glorantha is. And so uh, and certainly there are a lot of people who for whom a lot of the fun of role playing is world building or exploring an unfamiliar world. So although I think it's useful to ask yourself, how much information would I need to give people if I was running this game in the real world, if I was running Scottish borderers instead of Orlanthe, but still when it comes right down to it, a lot of people do enjoy these settings and so want our advice on how to easily and, and quickly in a bite-sized way, uh, present it to them. And so for those people, I would say, always ask yourself what do the characters really need to know now and as much as possible deliver the information in bite-sized chunks over the course of the campaign and make the information have an emotional impact that you wouldn't necessarily get again from the beginning of the game book where there's a big long history and in fact i even sort of find that I, i would argue that that has always been something that gives has given us a disservice over the year. The idea that a world book should start with a big, long chronology that goes back for uh, millennia, and that really you should start with the present day and move the, the history to the back, because almost none of the characters, or possibly none of the characters, will know that history. But they will know who their friends are who their enemies are what it is they're trying to do and what obstacles stand in the way of what they're trying to do and if information about the world doesn't relate to any of those questions i would wait to introduce it until it does
1: no i would certainly agree with you in the sense that if you've got a uh a fantasy world or a world that uh you don't know a science fiction world that you don't have an immediate uh, uh point of entry into through, through knowledge of it and i would I'd question your argument that people don't know anything about the Renaissance. They don't know anything correct maybe, but they know enough to know what they want to do in the Italian Renaissance. Uh, there are certainly historical eras that that even I would have to um, uh, to go to Wikipedia and swat up on, but I think most people have more connection to various Earth settings so that when you're doing a fantasy world you can say and have said plenty of times, it's kind of like Vikings except they worship gods like the Greeks or it's kind of like um, uh the uh the chinese empire except they all ride um uh, unicorns or you know it's kind of like this thing that you know from earth legendary history except that other thing that makes the setting s- special or a twist or different from uh running it in you know the historical era
0: and with very few exceptions though like jerun or possibly tecumel that you know, even Forgotten Realms or Glorantha, you can proceed by analogy in that way. You can say the Orlanthe are landlocked Vikings and that the Lunars are sort of like the Romans except they have more of a Eastern mystic crazy religion. But you don't really need to know about the religion because as an Orlanthe, everything you know about the religion is wrong. You just know that they're devil worshippers and Ooh. they've invaded your land. And so uh, through that, you can very... And the great thing about Glorantha, for example, and this is something that was an idea that was later used in Vampire to, to create the clans that create your allegiance, is that if you pick what you do, you are then pecking your god. And through the description of what you do and how you do it through your god, that tells you everything you need to know about your character and about the world as you know it in a pretty brief chunk of time. And yeah. when I was uh, designing the hero, what was first Hero Wars and became Hero Quest, a uh, rule set for Glorantha, one of the very first things about the rule set was that you were meant to get little chunks of text about all of the different character types, which would tell you everything you need to know in a you know maybe one page about the world from the point of view of somebody who was raised where you were raised and does what you do mm-hmm. and uh that might be another approach is to steal that keyword idea once you know what. You want to convey to people through what it is that they do. You could write up, you know, one page of world detail from their point of view. Although it'd be much easier to just sort of give it to the players in a Q and A kind of basis.
1: Yeah, when I was running uh, a lot of games uh, in in when I was in grad school, I'd do a lot of one page, you know, what the world looks like to you type stuff. And because I knew that uh, even though they were, you know, uh, as students at University of Chicago and therefore selected to read. Reams of background material in very little time. They didn't necessarily want to do it as part of their gaming experience. So, the, you know, what does, you know, your character know, believe, think, hate, fear? The, those are good starting standpoints. And then you can find out later that while elves hate dwarves, you don't necessarily hate mountain dwarves because they don't come down into the forests and screw with you to, to burn charcoal. You only really hate those crummy uh, cave dwarves, or whatever.
0: Right, and uh, ideally you learn that by, you meet a cave dwarf in session Ooh. two, and the GM says to you, you really hate these guys. Throughout time immemorial, your uh, father and his father's father and his father's father have fought, fought the cave dwarves, and then when you meet the hill dwarves, you go, oh no, put back your sword, these are hill dwarves, you've had great relations, and that's how you you know, weave in all of this uh, backstory that World builders uh, really enjoy, but that uh, players find very daunting unless they find some way to make it accessible to them. Yeah. Well, I think we have uh, answered that question, don't you?
1: I believe that uh, we have intersected with that setting quite nicely.
0: Uh, well, then let us exit the Ask Cannon Robin Dome and enter our next structure. And that structure is uh, the Elliptony Hut. Um, now, I could have called this the Fort Fort, but uh, that would have been recondite even for us. Uh, perhaps I will start off inaugurating this yet another hut by asking uh, you, Ken, to explain what Elliptony is.
1: Elliptony is uh, my general uh, uh, portmanteau word, my, my word to encompass all crazy things that are wrong. Uh, if you if you sort of look at it, conspiracy theory doesn't deal that much with fairies and elves. Uh, folklore doesn't really deal with alchemy. Uh, magic and the occult doesn't deal with uh, Bigfoot sightings. All of these things we instinctively recognize as um, uh, grist for the exciting mill of uh, gaming, but uh, not particularly solid uh, places to put your feet in dealing with the real world. And there isn't really a sort of a, an overall umbrella topic that that covers, you know, um, UFOs and vampires, so I picked uh, Elliptony in honor of uh, insane uh, hyper-communist Vladimir Zhirinovsky, who during the 90s, as the Russian uh, Republic was replacing uh, the Soviet Union, would occasionally take to the floor of the Duma and threaten to destroy the decadent West with Russia's secret Ellipton research, and... I fell in love with secret ellipton research as one must when it is being aimed at one by a doughy ex-communist, uh, and re- re- and resolved never to know anything about secret ellipton research so that I would be able to keep any possible doom that Jiranovsky had in mind for me as part of it, and which m- led me to the notion that the general field of things that are uh, likely to be said in a spittle-flecked rant could be described as elliptony, and the, you know uh, uh, no one has come up with a better term. there isn't another term, so um I'm kind of fond of elliptony and i will uh i will uh be able to look back with happiness if it ever makes it into the o e d or other noble repository of the english language
0: now I, I would imagine that although uh elliptony is a portmanteau of things that are wrong that on the outer fringes of the elliptonic field, as it were that there are things that are uh weird and related to an elliptony but still right, so that if uh Someone finds a phylacene, for example, that it would move from the world of cryptozoology to regular zoology, but we still might be interested in that in the way that it relates to cryptozoology.
1: Right, just just like um, when there are real people, uh, like um, uh, uh, Peter Curtin, the guy in Dusseldorf in the 20s, who would uh, sneak up on girls and uh, kill them and drink their blood. He's a real vampire. Vampires are still a myth, but sort of creepy, weird serial killers... Still within, as you say, the elliptonic radius. Just like uh, if you found, you know, actual evidence of, say, a, uh, a Templar fort in North America, Templars in North America would still be elliptonic. This particular Templar fort would be the um, uh, the, the 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 boundary zone, or the or whatever you want to call it, the 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 point of intersection between the elliptonic field and uh, earthly reality, and that, of course, is where. All the real fruitful stuff happens is when you're right in that fuzzy area, and you can half convince yourself for the purpose of a novel or a role-playing game or a comic book that there just might be a Templar fort in Rhode Island.
0: So here in the Leupturny Hut, uh, you can imagine it, uh, listeners at home, as we have a big portrait of uh, Charles Fort on one side. We've or, sorry, Charles Fort on one side. We've got a picture of Nikola Tesla on the other. We're uh, showing the newly captured giant squid video because even though giant squids are real. They remind us of things that are unreal. And uh, today, I thought, uh, last episode was uh, kind of heavy, so I thought we would deal with something a little lighter, and that's uh, a fresh, exciting example of Elliptony, which is the sighting of the Martian ground squirrel. Now, we'll put a link uh, to the uh, page that covers this exciting bit of Elliptony on uh, our website, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.com, so you can see it for yourself. But, uh, there is a, a photo, a lovely color photo, uh, taken by uh, the uh, latest Mars uh, rover, and it very clearly seems to depict a recumbent ground squirrel. And I thought, uh, uh, Ken, what, what, what do we make of this? It couldn't possibly just be pattern recognition, because that would mean that the faces on Mars are also uh, unreal.
1: Yes, the, um, uh, the, the the common skeptical response by people who know how people's brains work and are therefore no fun is to invoke um, uh, pareidolia, which is literally the ability to see images that are not there. And that's how you see Jesus in all the other grilled cheese sandwiches that are not your grilled cheese sandwich. That's how you see all the wrong uh, faces on Mars that are not the proper face on Mars. It's how you yeah you know, I mean, because we are evolved uh, from things not unlike that ground squirrel that have to immediately recognize patterns as either threats or food sources and that's how our little brains work and uh however uh obviously the secret masters the the invisible forces the ultra terrestrials know that's how our brains work and because they live as John Keel uh pointed out in Operation Trojan Horse they live only to screw with us they enjoy doing things exactly like this uh like uh Releasing ground squirrels onto Mars to cause us to then ignore the face on Mars—it's a—it's uh, a—it's a deep cover game. Or, of course, it's evidence that Mars has had an atmosphere for uh, forever, and the government just lies to us about it in order to build their alternative for anti-global warming compound, uh, full of uh, vanished pop stars and um, uh, robots and such.
0: So the question then becomes: How do we? Uh, leverage what is clearly a Martian ground squirrel because I'm looking at a picture of it and there's a red circle around it, so it's got to actually be a, a squirrel. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we turn this into a, a premise or an adventure seed for a role-playing scenario or a, a short story or work of fiction?
1: I, I think that what you begin with is, you begin with the the notion, when I saw the, the Martian ground squirrel, my first response, and I think that if you're any kind of creative person, you need to sort of welcome that first response and, and see what kind of, uh, of of work you can make out of it. Because if you overthink this stuff, you wind up it, – it, I, th- I think a lot of times it, it winds up sounding like you're just banging out to uh, make a deadline, Brad Steiger. So the <laughs> – so my first response looking at that ground squirrel on Mars was to not say the Mars rover isn't on Mars. I understand a lot of people would say, well, that means the Mars rover is in Utah. what a What a rip. My response is immediately to say there's an atmosphere on Mars. Or at least one thick enough for ground squirrels to live, and that to me is so much more fun because it's a fairly neutral change uh, in terms of how that affects any of us here on the real world. But it has huge impact, and the more you think about what kind of impact it would have to have, the more ridiculous the the conspiracy behind it gets. And I think that that's that that's where I went. I, I went to the to the world of you know, oops. Um, they, they've, uh, they've, they've got the, the feeds crossed this isn't the, the Curiosity rover feed that's out rolling around in the desert part of Mars, this is a, uh, a feed from another, from another site on Mars the Alternative 4 compound or maybe the, the Alternative 4 compound has broken down and the squirrels have started to move out into the rest of Mars and so you're seeing you know, the, that first wave of, uh, of the disaster movie when you see the animals all going away from whatever's going on uh, th- that's my first response to that, is there's an atmosphere on Mars what does that mean? And it can mean you know the Curiosity river went to barsoom it can mean it can mean that we've all been uh, lied to like I say by the astronomical community going back to the Victorian era. It can mean any number of, of possible things and you know the notion of of being able to breathe the air on Mars has got such a powerful hold on i think the imaginative life of of pretty much everyone in you know the in in the in the in the post uh since the mid nineteenth century. That the number of different directions you can take that is is almost overwhelming, and you again, I I want to dive towards one specific uh, explanation as fast as I could without overthinking it.
0: Right. So if we if we're here at the elliptonic border, where suddenly there is an atmosphere on Mars, because that allows us to do all sorts of cool things uh, once we get to Mars, and hopefully we do not have uh, Alzheimer's, as it has recently been posited that uh, anyone uh, exploring outside of the uh, protective atmosphere uh, will wind up uh, getting due to solar radiation. But let's say you get to Mars, you haven't got Alzheimer's. That's not why you're seeing ground squirrels. And you find suddenly that there's an atmosphere there. So how do we account for the fact that we thought there wasn't an atmosphere and here
1: you go, there it is? Um, again, there's I guess, I guess there's the two possible explanations, the two ways you go. You either go, uh, we were lied to which is strong. Uh, It's driven a lot of, of great uh, narratives and a lot of great gameplay over the time. Or you go, there has been a phase change of some kind in Mars. And since the last time, you know, we paid attention, Mars suddenly developed an atmosphere. And usually what that means is you're not on Mars. You're on Barsoom as John Carter uh, eventually figures out. uh, Barsoom being uh, uh, Mars in the, in the, in the distant past. Um, Although that, of course, violates the continuity of the stories, but whatever. Edgar Rice he was on a deadline. <laughs> I, I like the notion that there's been some sort of, of uh, you know, what Thomas Kuhn calls the, the, the scientific revolution, where everything you know about science is suddenly, you know, thrown into doubt. Uh, and, of course, Kuhn is talking about it as a mental construct. You know, relativity questions Newtonian mechanics. Uh, Newton questions Aristotle. But I like the notion of a Kuhnian revolution that actually has real-world effects, that no... Honest to God, there was a luminiferous ether until Michelson and Morley wrecked it for everyone. Or, honest to God, there was no atmosphere on Mars until some, you know, mad uh NASA cognitive psychologist, you know, put a bunch of ground squirrels onto Mars and we wished the atmosphere into existence, Tulpa style, that this this video campaign to show us ground squirrels on Mars is actually the... Creative act that is causing an atmosphere to appear on Mars
0: or it couldn't be in fact that the ground squirrels themselves are responsible for the atmosphere of not only of Mars uh, but of earth
1: yes th- th- that's another possibility that we there is some uh, unknown uh wormhole or conduit within ground squirrels or psychic ability that causes them to produce atmosphere and terraforming just became suddenly so much simpler
0: and so once you go to Mars and that you first of all discover that there have been ground squirrel secretly seeded by NASA on the surface of Mars in order to terraform it and create an atmosphere, then the question becomes, well, wait a minute, what happens uh, when uh, one of the super geniuses that we regularly encounter in this world discovers this and then decides to destroy Earth's atmosphere as one will will if one is a super genius or threaten to do so by somehow attacking the ground squirrel population? Because then all of a sudden, uh, the future of Earth and one's power on Earth would depend on one's uh, ability to corner the supply of ground squirrels.
1: Although I presume that the ground squirrel doesn't produce atmosphere, or maybe it produces it locally. I mean, if if a ground you know one ground squirrel produces X amount of atmosphere, I guess if you're playing Gerps, that's the kind of thing you would need to know immediately. Um, I, I think you know just you know from my neighborhood in Hyde Park in Chicago is pretty much I think keeping the world supplied with atmosphere as it is. I mean, we are lousy with ground squirrels. Um, and so I, I think we're safe from super geniuses who are trying to corner the market. Maybe if they're, um, sending some sort of ground squirrel flu, uh, out to kill all the ground squirrels, that might be their, their, their methodology.
0: Well, this doesn't seem to be, uh, your garden variety or a uh, park variety, uh, ground squirrel though. This guy seems to be a sort of, some sort of desert like uh, prairie dog guy, but weirdly enough, he's the color of the rocks around him, Ken. There must be meaning to this.
1: Well, that's evolution, dude. I mean, read a book right that that ground squirrel has evolved that coloration in order to protect himself from you know the 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 giant eagles or the banths or whatever else are are roaming around mars um the uh The internet seems to believe that it is a common round tailed ground squirrel uh similar to those it found in the california desert so it's not it's not too far away from the Hyde park um uh, park squirrel as uh as as I know it I'm sure and it, perhaps it produces oxygen. Uh, more efficiently than the Hyde Park squirrel, but I can't believe that they're not immediately connected. Once we start finding uh, small rodents connected to uh, physical constants, I think that it's only a matter of time until we capture the chipmunk that causes uh, the weak nuclear force.
0: Well, yeah. You mentioned GERPS before. If if there's a role-playing author who needs to uh, fill a word count, they may have an extensive chart of different rodents and their uh, different atmospheric production effects and uh, that as as you suggest might complicate these schemes of super geniuses to an undue degree. Uh, I would uh, be tempted to go in another direction, which is to uh, what happens if there is no atmosphere on Mars yet there is a dead ground squirrel when you, as the Martian exploratory team, arrive, and it's an Earth style ground because otherwise that raises the question of is this parallel evolution or is this an Earth ground squirrel? that somehow got to Mars. And so that can get you your teleport tube that uh, maybe this swirl was romping happily around the California desert and just fell into a, a wormhole that took it from Earth to Mars. And once you've discovered that, you've got the prospect of instantaneous uh, travel from Earth to Mars. And where does, where does that get you? Where does that uh, build the storyline? Or if you have, want to have just a weird mystery... The uh, scientific team can try and find out where the ground squirrel is, and maybe they find a, an underground base where there is an atmosphere. And uh, there may find you could have a time travel aspect where you, they discover that they've uh, gone through a time distortion effect. And in fact, that the underground lab that they were meant to set up, complete with experimental ground squirrels, has already been set up. They're all dead inside, and the ground squirrels have escaped. And now, what do you do?
1: I can see that as as a really sort of a fun space-going lost uh, uh, campaign frame where you're you're the first guys on Mars and you're there to set up the colony and you find the ruins of the colony that you already set up. And your goal is to sort of uh, figure out what killed you before you got to the point of being killed by it type deal and why is there a weird Martian time loop effect anyway and who knew about this before? Uh, yeah, there's all manner of of great mysteries. Once you you do the uh, the the equivalent of, of having your ground squirrel escape from a hatch, it's uh, it, it's at least as valid as the polar bear on on the Lost Island, sh- for sure. I, I I like the notion of the of it being an earth ground squirrel that escaped. I loved your your teleport gate idea. I think the uh, I, I I think I kind of want to say that once you start talking California, that the ground squirrel would have had to have been carried there by those UFOs that used to show up to Georgia Damsky in the California desert, right? that it's not so much a teleport tube as it's evidence of regular back and forth movement. And again, uh, because that's the great era of the UFO contact, he's the very late forties and very early fifties, that that's where those ground squirrels came from is out of some sort of uh, some sort of regular California to uh, Mars contact, because I don't think realistically ground squirrels are like the first thing you pack. I think that's like the 10th or 15th or 50th mission where You've pretty much tested everything else. It's like, I don't know, test some ground squirrels, see what happens.
0: Yeah, it could be, in fact, that the UFO visitors uh, came to Earth and decided that the highest, most interesting form of life, or perhaps just the tastiest, uh, were ground squirrels. And uh, they conveyed some away, and there was some sort of crash landing on Mars. And uh, where you go from there, I guess you would follow the tracks of wreckage from the dead ground squirrel over the ridge to the uh, UFO, and there you go.
1: Yeah, one of those one of those classic bits where the the Curiosity rover drives up and he sees the ground squirrel, and then the camera pans up and you see the smoldering UFO wreckage right over the over the ridge there. Um, uh, as as a as sort of an establishing shot for a campaign that turns out not to be about a ground squirrel, that's that's a pretty good one too.
0: So I think we've uh, well squeezed the uh, Meyer lemon that is the ground squirrel on Mars story and the rest. We will leave up to you, uh, assembled listener of this esteemed podcast.
1: It's time f- again for the segment that we like to jauntily call, Among Our Many Hats, and that others have called, Barely disguised gratuitous plugs, so we'll agree to disagree. And Among Our Many Hats this week, we're talking about a previous project of ours that I think we both loved, perhaps to distraction. I know I certainly did. Shadows Over Filmland. And I'm pretty sure, Robin, it was your idea to do Shadows Over Filmland, so why don't you tell us about that?
0: Well, uh, one might call this, first of all, Among Our Many Hats Classic Edition. Believe it or not, we have actually received... Uh, requests to go back over our past products and discuss those. Uh, in fact though, that uh, shadowy uh, forces at uh, Pelgrane Towers in London have asked us to uh, talk about Shadows Over Filmland this week because, coincidentally enough, uh, there's actually a 10% off deal at the Pelgrane store until February 1st. If you want to pick up your copy of Shadows Over Filmland, you can uh, grab it at a bargain price so just uh type in your internet devices, uh, PelgranePress.com, and then click on the store button, and uh, you can get a deal on this. So Shadows Over Filmland is a Trail of Cthulhu uh, play pack, I guess you might call it. It's a collection of scenarios as well as some support material. A brilliant essay by uh, Monsieur Haidt on the connections between classic 30s horror movies and Lovecraft. The whole... Collection is our refracted look at Lovecraft through the lens of uh, 30s horror movies, uh, particularly the early Universal films, but we sort of branch out from there to cover other things as well. And uh, so there's a bunch of scenarios. There's uh, my section on how to create the weird, uh, real, not real, uh, Victorian slash 1930s a uh, world in which many of these uh, movies seem to be set and which you uh, find a weird resemblance between setting elements from one uh, film to the next. And then there's a, a scenario that uh, in turn covers each of the major monsters or types of horror films from that period. And Ken, maybe you could uh, talk a bit about uh, what you found while uh, writing the essay about the connections between uh, 30s horror uh, films and the uh, what on the surface seems to be the quite different horror of H.P. Lovecraft.
1: Well, uh, before I get to that, I do want to mention that uh, your piece on the backlot gothic, which was an inspired uh, piece of nomenclature, uh, was is is really strong and it. Uh, it led me to uh, look not just at the Universal horror films differently, but also to look at the Hammer horror films and sort of try and apply some of what they were doing—that same sort of—but in this case, 30s to 60s or 1890s to 1960s horror sensibility with the uh, the Hammer uh, the, the the Hammer horror look that the the notion of the backlot Gothic that you that you took uh, and and sort of laid out in that essay it was uh, is very tremendous and also of great help when. When writing and conceiving how the scenarios should work, and the, the notion of backlotness as a quality to the universe is one that I think is is really strong and and really necessary for, for an, for a thing like this.
0: It was really fun to to think about this in terms of, uh, you know, we often think about just what is the reality that we're describing to the players, but the question, to, you know, think of it as something that has not just set dressing and places that you go to and explore, but also that there are certain recurring visual motifs that you might want to introduce. So you have, uh, it turns out that there's a lot of verticality in these uh, films, that there's, uh, you know, forests thrusting, naked pine trees thrusting up into the sky, and that there's uh, mansions on great rocky crags, and that this feeds into the sense that there's a heaven and a hell, that there's uh, a uh, damnation often above and there's salvation down on the ground if you're not foolish enough to go up in the castle and learn the terrible secrets. So there's uh, sort of an interesting thematic inversion. And if once you start asking yourself, what are the visual motifs that reflect the theme of my campaign and how do I sneak them into a game, I think that opens up a, a much richer question that you can apply way beyond this filmland setting, beyond the backlot gothic setting, to whatever new world that you're creating to put your players in. And that can sort of encourage you, first of all, to build a theme into your uh, world, and secondly, ways to sort of subliminally I- introduce and reinforce that theme.
1: And uh, on the question of themes, obviously, the 1930s uh, films have real concern with uh, sort of uh, ongoing social uh, themes and ongoing social horrors, just like horror film and horror literature does generally. And of course Lovecraft is writing uh the last batch of his stories right as these films are being made. So they share themes in ways that you would not ordinarily have, you know, have, have considered because Lovecraft is not writing you know, The Wolfman versus The Mummy. Lovecraft is writing, you know, The Shadow Out of Time. But both of those stories, The Wolfman and the, and the Shadow Out of Time, are about human beings being put into other bodies, into monstrous bodies. The notion of identity, notion of dislocation, alienation, these are strong themes that are coming out of the 1930s, of course, as people are beginning to, uh, n- get, uh, uh, not comfortable with, but, but in, but in internalize this notion that, um, uh, the, the human mind depends more strongly on its uh, physical surroundings than we were able to believe back in the good old days of Cartesian dualism, and that the notion of changing your body does actually change you as a person in a way. Uh, the the uh, Both of those uh, sort of body replacement horror stories are coming out of the 1930s for, for very strong reasons. Uh, the scholar, um, uh, uh, I think it's Michael Skall says that all of the sort of corporeality of, of 20s and 30s horror comes out of World War I and seeing those piles of corpses in the trenches. And I'm not sure that... Uh, I think that's a little overdetermined, but... It, it
0: has the word all in it.
1: Yeah. But I think that, you know, you certainly don't have to... It, you don't have to go very far to understand why the mutilations uh, in something like uh, Phantom of the Opera and the mutilations in uh, Frankenstein are so surgically alive in those films. I think it's not just the nature of Um, uh, Of black and white photography. I think it's the nature of the people doing that special effects had been seeing mutilated bodies in their newspapers and had seen or knew people who had seen them in life in the trenches and didn't have the sort of uh, cartoony attitude that we have towards mutilated bodies um, uh, with the exception of Tom Savini, obviously, uh, with uh, modern day special effects. And and, and that the concern of, of the mutilation is such a a present concern in 30s film that, again, you can go and say, all right, is Lovecraft concerned with mutilation? And the answer is, no, but he's very concerned with the grotesque. And where are those connections? And what I basically did was I went through the sort of the standard universal monsters and said, does Lovecraft have vampires? Yes, he does. They're hidden away, but he's got vampires. Does Lovecraft have a wolfman? Not in so many words, but, you know, et cetera. And then go, go, go through all these sort of... um uh, Of tropes that uh, the 30s uh, films are doing and it's an interesting uh, sort of historical effect because the 30s are primarily going to the pre-Lovecraftian generation of horror to get their stories from, but they're telling them about very modern concerns. While Lovecraft is taking very modern sorts of scientific uh, realization and very modern developments in horror fiction and he's using them to revive the pre 19th century gothic really to 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 regothicize the the lived experience of the world and so both of those uh both of those uh horror art forms are dislocated from their current time in a way that again it feels both lovecraftian and it feels uh i th- i think it certainly feels the way that we 21st century moderns feel when we watch and allow ourselves to experience as opposed to make fun of a 1930s horror film
0: right they they both lovecraft and uh uh, Todd Browning and James Whale and later Val Lewton are drawing on a tradition that comes from Poe and uh, Shelley and, uh, and from Stoker, uh, particularly uh, the original 31 Dracula obviously is is uh, based on a stage play, which is directly based on the, the Stoker novel. The uh, early Mummy film with Karloff is uh, sort of an Egyptian uh, reskinning of that same dynamic, that idea of uh, sort of a sexual menace that's being introduced into uh, America in particular at an age where there's been a, a moral retrenchment after the 20s and those early films are just at the cusp right when uh, suddenly the, the Hayes office is going to come in a few years later and sort of clamp down but both uh, Dracula and The Mummy have this really sort of dreamlike a quality of hypnotic uh, sexual predation, do you find a parallel to that in, in Lovecraft?
1: Of course, Lovecraft's notion of sexuality is worth, you know, a whole separate uh, hut by itself, <laughs> so it can't go touch all the other huts. But <laughs> if you um, if you look at stories like The Thing in the Doorstep and you look at stories like, uh, to a lesser extent, Shadow over Rinsmouth, you're definitely looking at a notion of sexual predation from the outside, the the, and Lovecraft's cursed lineage is nothing more than there was some sort of sexual predation that happened in the past, and now that inevitable effect is is coming true for us.
0: Now, we had a lot of fun with the scenarios. As you suggest, you can sort of go through Lovecraft and find analogs or fusions. So, for example, the uh, Frankenstein-inspired scenario, Dr. Gravedust, uh, finds uh, its experimenter in the dark Balkan castle to be a protege of uh, Charles Dexter, no, not Charles Dexter, of of Herbert West. Um, The invisible man becomes the non-Euclidean man. And uh, you uh, did a really slick thing, which is that, for example, Dracula, of course, is in the public domain. You don't need to uh, take the decoration and images from uh, the universal Dracula in order to write a Dracula story so that your uh, version of Dracula is in this the continuity of the Stoker novel. And uh, you did another uh, similar cool thing with White Zombie.
1: In, in which the film itself is in the public domain. And so I was able to write an actual sequel to uh, White Zombie, which is uh, a Victor Halperin film from, I think, 1931. And it's it it's insanely low budget but it, it you talk about that hypnotic dreamlike atmosphere of sexual predation i don't know if it was just the cheap film stock that Halpern used or the fact that he had Lagosi before Lagosi had the heroin habit but there's a lot of that i mean it's it's really it, it's really powerful in that film it works tremendously well um it's nothing like the zombies that we uh, love now and i i put some some contagion in there for people who who can't have their zombies without a little of it but the uh, the ability to sort of go through and, and watch White Zombie and write the actual sequel to it was great fun. Uh, my favorite, of course, of yours was The Val Lewton Tribute, which managed to be a perfect Val Lewton movie and also a terrific uh, uh, Cthulhu Mythos investigative investigative story.
0: Uh, should you choose to, to make it that? And also we covered kind of the decadent, phase of the uh universal movies in that there's a scenario that's uh first of all a tribute to another classic uh story of the period but is also a monster mash movie in which you can reunite the uh, monsters from previous scenarios that uh correspond to the sort of the big 3 and then encounter them all together in a monster team up uh campaign now or sorry a uh, scenario now that introduces the tonal question of do you want to do that but for those that do uh, we uh, equip your needs.
1: Yes and the, the book has got uh, I think a wide enough remit that we are able to go a little bit outside it. Uh, Robin uh, you did a terrific King Kong riff and I uh, went further into the jungle horror of uh, James Whale's other great film from that era Green Hell which is actually not that great a film but it's not James Whale's fault. Um, as sort of the, the jungle as psychological horror. The, the, there's not so much a monster in Green Hill, it's that these horrible people have gone into the jungle and are being more horrible as a result of their isolation, which is, again, a very strongly uh, Lovecraftian uh, sensibility. That gives you
0: this sort of antagonistless environment of, say, the color out of space, where the environment is destroying you but isn't personified.
1: Right, uh, although I then uh, added a monster because, come on, but the uh but the but but the goal was to definitely like you say make the environment your biggest antagonist.
0: Uh well I think we have uh, well talked about this item and for those of you who do not have it on yourself slaked your desire to go immediately to the Pelgrane press store at PelgranePress.com and snag your deal while it still lasts. And so those of you who uh save your podcasts for weeks on end in order to slowly get them in order. I'm afraid we've cruelly punished you, but for the uh, early birds among you, we recommend that you go and grab that. And now, finally, we come to Ken's time machine. As uh, long-time listeners of the show know, this is a segment in which Time Incorporated sends Ken back through the Chrono Vortex to sort out various problems throughout history and improve, shape, nip, and tuck the historical time stream. And this week, they have a particular assignment for uh, Ken. They want you to... uh, get rid of Stalin. Now that should be a no-brainer as to why you should do that. Possibly you have some ideas as to how (laughs) you would remove uh, Stalin. Uh, But the real question, uh, as far as they're concerned, is not how you get rid of Stalin, but how you get rid of Stalin in order to install, as a replacement, the best possible candidate to replace Stalin, to mediate all of the mass murdery effects of early communism, but still under the idea that the uh, Soviet communism has to exist for a while, has to play itself out, has to prove itself wrong uh, in order for the time stream to reach its maximal level of harmony. But perhaps we could do it without quite not so many people dead and imprisoned and uh, art traditions destroyed and and so on and so forth. So uh Ken, what do you do about uh finding a uh kinder gentler replacement for Stalin?
1: Well, the um uh, the, the 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 great belief that um uh, if you could only replace Stalin, you uh you could have a kinder gentler Soviet communism is on the one hand, you know, unremarkable. Stalin was by far the worst of the worst. Uh there is certainly um, Joseph Brodsky, who was a exile from uh, Stalinist Poland, uh, had the great line that uh, people uh, often wish that they could have replaced Stalin with Trotsky, and I remind them that Trotsky actually believed in that. Uh, so I, I think that Joseph Brodsky should be listened to when uh, the, you criticize the notion that replacing Stalin actually uh, avoids the mass murder and the destruction of art traditions and the general horror that was Soviet communism. Obviously the The architecture of that horror was created by Lenin, uh, in the uh, right after the October Revolution, when he uh, remade the Okhrana in competent form as the Cheka, and put Zhirinovsky in charge of it. Certainly, uh, Lenin's instincts were to uh, total uh, to rule Russia in totalitarian fashion, and only the fact that he lost World War I and uh, was engaged in possibly the worst famine of the 20th century. Uh, caused him to reverse his himself and institute the new economic policy. So the notion of Stalinism of of Soviet communism only kinder and gentler is the sort of thing that only uh, Ivy League graduates like the jerks in charge of Time Incorporated would come up with.
0: Well, we're we're not. Uh, I don't think they're arguing that uh, this is going to be a, a rosy lo- uh, land of, of uh, sunshine and beauty, but simply that this uh, unaccountable. System that grinds people up will perhaps grind uh, fewer people up and grind them up less horribly if uh, someone who's not as completely monomaniacally dedicated to the task as Stalin is in there. So they're obviously not looking for uh, an ideal solution from you. They're looking for the uh, best worst solution.
1: Well, uh, my ideal solution, of course, is to dynamite the uh, Pravda headquarters uh, on uh, July 18th, I believe it is 1917 when it is already surrounded by white troops and before Stalin and Lenin are able to escape. And that way you take out pretty much the entire central committee of the Bolshevik revolution. Previously in our discussions that uh, were the the thinly disguised recruitment for uh, Ken's time machine by Time Incorporated, I mentioned uh, uh, dynamiting the sealed train, which sadly would not have taken out Stalin. He was uh, in Siberia, and so he just sort of uh, got released by the Kerensky government in February. But the way to sort of replace Stalin in the course of the early revolution after Lenin has died, I think the the, the the single easiest way to get him out is to make sure that Lenin's Final Testament is publicized. And Lenin's Final Testament, as Lenin is lying there with a stroke watching Stalin uh, take over the entire party after Lenin idiotically made him general secretary, uh, he's writing notes about what an awful person Stalin is turning out to be, that he's doing the oppressing everyone uh, you know, he's doing it all wrong and not like Lenin wants him to do. And it's it's very much the sort of, you know, why isn't my toast have its corners cut off type political manifesto only about murdering people. But it would really have put paid to Stalin if it had been revealed in the 1923 uh, party congress after um, after Lenin died. And Kamenev and I think Zinoviev were the guys who sort of teamed up with Stalin to make sure that that uh, testament did not get published. And I think the simplest way to get Stalin out of the picture is to make sure that Lenin's Last Testament is published. That gives Trotsky and the other anti-Stalinist um, uh, forces the ability to at least put Stalin on the on the back foot, probably get him removed as as general secretary. Now, the trouble being that if you don't just right away kill him, he's going to be able to maneuver his way back into power. If you look at sort of the way that his history goes, um, he is a consummate survivor. He was he was a a bank robber and a bandit and a bad guy back in the in the Georgian Hills. He was sort of a a, a you know Jesse James with the uh, ethics of uh, well probably of Jesse, James, <laughs> Jesse frankly. James. And and he looked surprisingly like Ryan Gosling too. I was looking at pictures of of young Stalin and it's like man I totally buy this now. That's that 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 sends a whole new message. He wasn't always a a grouchy scowly uncle with a mustache. He was, hey
0: girl, want to follow my five-year plan?
1: Yes, hey girl, I believe socialism in one country begins in one room. <laughs> that kind of thing. but yeah he was he was um, uh, he was startlingly charismatic and had a real real gift for uh political manipulation when I was reading or, or rereading in this particular case the the sort of the the, the career of Stalin during that that period from 1918 to, say, uh, 1924, 1926. I'm reminded of Julius Caesar, the way that he sort of negotiates deals with his enemies, brings them into power, then uses them to crush his other enemies, then once those enemies are crushed, picks two new guys and says, let's you and me gang up on my most powerful partner, crush him out. Just a also almost a mathematical thing of beauty, the way that he rises to power.
0: And, and that argues that there is something signally uh uh, skillful slash horrible about him that uh, makes him a candidate for uh, replacing him with someone less so.
1: Yeah, I mean, Stalin, uh, you know, before the whole thing is over, is responsible for uh, directly murdering something on the order of 6 to 10 million people, and through grotesque incompetence in the in World War II, you know, killing another 20 million Russians, and then probably just in terms of uh, creating situations in which uh, you know the Ukrainian famine happens uh, deliberately, uh, closing the borders to Ukraine. That's another six million people on his account too. So you know if uh, if uh, Zinoviev or Kamenev or Bukharin take over, you can probably get that number down to only say Paul Pot numbers, uh, which is I you know certainly it's an improvement. But I think that Time Incorporated <laughs> is perhaps
0: well, it's it's your current remit
1: because in the <laughs> yeah. past when you've gone to, gone
0: back and. Removed communism entirely. Weirdly enough, we end up invaded by the Mars Attacks aliens. So yes, until it's... we can figure out what that connection is, we want to go back at least for the moment and uh, and go for say the uh, the four million dead
1: instead of the what's the grand total there thirty five or something thirty thirty five to forty. Right. I mean, obviously you can you can pick and choose numbers back and forth, but it's. It's, right. So, it's so shooting
0: merely for a regular level historical atrocity. Right. Who do you? Uh, you're you're there in the scene in, in your fur hat. Uh, you're using the uh, time-incorporated translation device to uh, speak the perfect Russian with the regional accent of your choice, and uh, you've revealed the Lenin document. Uh, Stalin has been uh, removed uh, from the scene, uh, apparently for the moment, but of course you've made. Uh, plans uh, as the ruthless apparatchik that you are to uh, remove him permanently from the equation, so uh who do you uh inveigle into power to replace him?
1: Well, I think that I agree with Brodsky that putting Trotsky in power is yet another kind of disaster now it may be the kind of disaster that solves itself because Trotsky maybe tries to start a war uh in the late twenties with uh Germany and then winds up uh losing that uh But you can't necessarily count on that, and again, you try to avoid world wars as much as you possibly can. I think that probably the guy that you want to put in charge is Bukharin, and a lot of sort of uh, uh, you know lame uh, pinks in uh, the Ivy League and indeed in the University of Chicago, when I was taking Soviet studies, were very fond of Bukharin. Uh, There's a guy I forget his, I think it's Stephen Cohen, who is a a Soviet historian who turned out to be wrong on virtually every uh, salient argument that he made before the archives got opened up.
0: Is this the same Stephen Cohen who's a well-known pundit on Russia now?
1: I think it is, yes. Yeah. Um, but he was a big Bukharin uh, booster. And the great thing about Bukharin is that Bukharin doesn't actually believe in anything. He was a left Bolshevik when that was uh, when that was handy, uh, and he was a right Bolshevik when that was handy. So it's the Mitt Romney of communism. <laughs> the, the, the the Mitt Romney or the John Kerry, but he's he's short and bad looking, so it's he's not actually either of them. Um, but <laughs> don't I, I checked? But the uh, but but the thing about uh, Buchanan uh, that's great is he's always on the wrong side. He always picks the losing side. He's like the anti-Stalin. So he's the left communists when Lenin is a right communist, and he's a right communist when Stalin is a left communist. And and so if you can get. Bukharin somehow in charge probably in in much the same way that Malenkov got put up in charge uh during the immediate post Khrushchev era as a compromise candidate while everyone knifes each other to figure out who they really want to be in charge he can possibly be the sort of incompetent um uh, uh I don't want to say well meaning but certainly without the uh, the visceral um uh, uh, red in tooth and claw uh chairman of the of the of the Soviet Union that you want to mitigate the damage as much as you can. That said, Bukharin was still a party ideologist. Bukharin was still uh, the guy who came up with socialism in one country. He's still um, uh, he's still bad news. I think the other interesting thing about Bukharin is that he probably, if if you can keep him in power from say twenty four through thirty four, you know, through that that first early period. He doesn't purge Tukhachevsky because he, he's there's no way that he's got the the, the stones to do it.
0: And uh, could you give us some background on who uh, Tukhachevsky is?
1: Tukhachevsky is the guy who was basically the after Trotsky's the father of the Red Army. He's the guy who builds the Red Army during the revolution. Tukhachevsky is the guy who takes it from a sort of um, uh, French revolutionary army of the mass, powered by Elan and hatred of the whites, into a professional army that is, as it turns out, capable of stomping the Wehrmacht into the snow. And Tugachevsky is the guy who sort of creates a lot of the fundamental doctrines, trains a lot of the of the of the generals and uh and colonels who are the people who built the Red Army into a professional force. He's the guy that sort of drove the creation of the T thirty four. He had a, a real knowledge of um of tank uh, uh, a strategy, things like this. And of course, he was a hugely powerful, hugely popular general when Stalin was in charge, which meant Stalin accused him of being a spy for Germany and had him and the entire Russian general staff purged in 1935, which means that come Operation Barbarossa, Hitler is attacking a Soviet Union without an experienced general staff. Now, Stalin likes that because the experienced general staffs are the kind of people who um, who sees the purple. <laughs> who give you a lot of back sass. <laughs> but uh, if Bukharin is in charge when Tukhachevsky is sort of rising to power and building up the Red Army, the best case scenario, Tukhachevsky does mount a military coup and overthrows Bukharin. And then you have the Red Army running Russia, which uh, will at least, um, uh, you know, solve any of that uh, of question of, of of wasting everyone's valuable time starving peasants when you need to be, you know, fattening them up so they can be uh spear carriers in the front lines.
0: Uh and this indeed is is perhaps one of the the flux points in the time stream where uh if you mess with it too much, you wind up with the Mars attacks aliens future that you still need a Soviet Union that can uh counter uh the Germans in World War 2. And yeah. so by uh giving the nod to this guy, you're you're tipping the balance even uh, further along that scale. So do you think there might be other Sort of positive uh, knock-on effects from uh, uh, putting this guy in charge.
1: Um, I, I I don't know how much positive you get out of Bukharin. I mean, he is he is a weedy little ideologist. The positive thing that you get is a weaker Communist uh, Party apparatus. You get again, you oh,
0: do So you're not planning to put the general in charge. No, oh, I'm, to... I'm
1: ideally would like Tukhachevsky in charge. Uh, Tukhachevsky, you know, uh, for all of his other um, uh, uh, virtues as a general is not, as I understand it, super ideological. I mean, he was obviously a, a, a communist. He fought on the on the red side during the war, but he's not a... Um...
0: Well, and successful journalists tend to be uh, men of practicality if they are yeah. successful. So uh, a more pragmatic uh, communist leader is perhaps uh, a, a better thing to have that will lead to the uh, quicker winding down of the uh, the Soviet communist movement.
1: Yeah, um, I, th- I think that um, the we we don't know an awful lot about Tukhachevsky's you know gen- genuine political beliefs because he's not an idiot and doesn't go around talking about his genuine political beliefs when everyone around him is getting killed for their genuine political beliefs. Um, he he did not, as I understand it, have any you know as, as uh, like I say, dedicated uh, red. Um, he engaged in some fairly, uh, ruthless summary executions of, 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 hostages during the civil war. You know, he, he certainly raised cities and, and, and burned downtowns and was a general, uh, uh, hard case. The revolution was
0: not a story of nice people doing nice things, right?
1: Yes. The revolution is not a garden party as someone once said. Uh, and he was, he was a, a bad man, but he, again, I think that, I don't think it would have been his priority to necessarily fundamentally remake uh Soviet society. And once you turn uh Russia over to the Red Army, as the Soviets knew quite well, you fundamentally uncommunize, you un- un-communize it. Uh, that's why the Red Army was always the weakest of the three uh, famous legs of the stool that ran Russia. Uh, they were subordinate to the party, and they were kept in line by the KGB and uh that that that's the whole uh role of uh the KGB uh for the uh, uh for for Stalin certainly was to uh, uh keep the army from overthrowing him and even down to to Brezhnev's era you the, the the internal troops that are that are you know around Moscow are not red army troops they're interior ministry troops and inside those are KGB troops so there's a there, there's a real sense even within the Soviet Union and I get the idea that you know, if if a, if a Soviet apparatchik is worried about someone overthrowing him, he has a good reason. So I, I think that once you put Tukhachevsky in charge, if you can get that to happen, and again, I don't know that Tukhachevsky was ever actually plotting to ch- put in charge, and he probably might have been the kind of guy who, once he figured out he could make Bukhar and do whatever he wanted, would be happy to sort of just be Grand Marshal of the Soviet Union and never actually take power.
0: But you're a so, persuasive man, and, and you have better vodka than he does.
1: And I have certainly, um, uh, you know, you talk about you know, a lifetime of training for one mission. Um <laughs> I could I could certainly give it the old college try and it, when once you have Tukhachevsky take over you a have a, a a Soviet Union that's militarily capable of holding off the Germans and b you probably don't have the worst of the post-Soviet uh of the post-Stalinist uh, regime you don't have the psychiatric hospitals for um uh for for dissidents you certainly break the back of the KGB because that's going to be job one uh for tugachevsky whether he's actually running things or not and that's uh that that goes a great way towards turning russia into a mere thug-like military dictatorship on the pinochet model which uh is a substantial improvement
0: uh well i think that you've uh, well articulated your plan to tackle this uh perhaps not entirely heroic brief but uh hey if you uh save uh, 35 or 30 million lives in the process so uh, I think you have to chalk that up as another uh, time incorporated job well done stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors
1: Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pellegrine Press. Music as always is by James Semple. Tell us what you think Mars needs at KennethRobinTalkAboutStuff dot or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height, and he's at Robin D Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>